We're going to go ahead and get started. And if you wouldn't mind just leaving that back door propped open so people can come and go freely, that'd be wonderful. Um, as ever, if you could silence or turn off your cell phone, that would be greatly appreciated. Thanks again for joining us today. Tomorrow will be a faculty reading at 11 o'clock, so I hope you'll come and join us for that. Today we have Anna Bruno. Anna Bruno is a writer and teacher at the University of Iowa's Tippy College of Business. She holds a BA from Stanford, an MBA from Cornell, and an MFA in fiction from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Her debut novel, Ordinary Hazards, will be out from Simon & Schuster next year. And it sounds really great. She was just talking about it. Anna also curated this lecture series for a number of years, so her face may already be familiar to you. Today, Anna will present the lecture, The Memory Curve and Transitions, in which she'll discuss the pesky problem that is the middle section of a novel, where a book often flags, the Antidote, a focus on beginnings, ends, and transitions. Please join me in welcoming Anna Bruno. All right, is that, that on? Okay. Uh, thank you, Rachel, very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be back in this capacity. I, I had a lot of fun curating this series. I think there's a lot of great speakers that come through, and it's, it's really fun meeting some of, all, some of you. Um, so the genesis of this talk is I did sell my novel, um, and my editor was, I noticed, I started noticing that she was very focused on these moments of transition. Um, it could be between scenes, you know, after a white space break, between chapters, certainly, um, and sometimes just between paragraphs, you have small transitions. Um, but she had like a hypersensitivity to them. And I hadn't really thought about it much before working with her. Because normally when we think, as writers, when we think of narrative tension and pulling the reader through, we largely think about plot. You know, you think about, oh, you have your inciting incident and you're building towards conflict and, and all those aspects of plot that are very important, of course. But that's not what this talk is about. So I'm not really going to touch on plot at all in this talk. What I'm, what I'm really going to do is maybe hopefully get you thinking about how do I move from one scene to the next, from one moment to the next, perhaps one place to the next. It might be one time to the next time. Um, so just the, the, those in-between moments. And, and in using those moments, what is that going to do to the reader? Um, the other thing I'd, I'd like to tee up on, with this topic is that this is largely a question for revision. It's very hard when you're, when you're writing on first pass to be thinking about moments of transition because you don't know what you're transitioning between when you're initially writing your work. And also, many of those scenes are ultimately going to be moved. Um, and we'll talk about when transitions can show you that it's actually a good idea to move a scene uh, when they're not working effectively as well. So it's really a question of, of revision. Um, but I'd like to start with this. So as Rachel mentioned, I teach at the Tippy College of Business. And I teach business communication. And there's some limited overlap between writing and business communication. And one area of overlap, I believe, is reader attention. 
So in, in business communication, we're hyper-focused on if you're giving a presentation or writing, you know, even an email, you really need to focus on does your reader care? How do I inspire the reader to keep caring? And so we teach this curve. Um, it has different it has different titles, but it, it, I call it the audience memory curve. And basically what it means is that at the beginning of a presentation, or for, for the purposes of this, a piece of writing, any story, the longer it, the story is, the more important perhaps this is. Um, so if it's a novel, this is very, very important. But the key is that at the beginning of the curve, you have your reader's attention at its peak, theoretically. I mean, you still need to draw the reader in. But that's when the reader has picked up the book, the reader has bought the book, the reader actually you know, wants this for some reason. Um, so you have the reader's attention there, and then you also have another spike in attention at the end. If the reader has made it to the end, um, they, they want to know how you're going to end your story, clearly. Um, and if you read a bunch of reader reviews on Amazon um, or any platform, most people complain a lot about the ending because the ending is what they care about next to the beginning the most. They, they want to be satisfied in some way. So an average presentation is shown with this dotted line. It's basically a U-curve, um, and in the middle of the presentation, the audience doesn't really care what you're talking about. You know, it's like at, at this talk in 11th hour, maybe 20 minutes from now, you guys will be checking your phones, and some people will leave, and I don't know. You'll just be basically thinking about what you're having for lunch, if you're not thinking about that already. So that's what happens in the middle of that U. So what transitions do is they create this upper line, the solid line, um, with, with what's called on this chart um, as intermediate conclusions. And I'm going to, for the purposes of this talk and the purposes of writing, I'm going to talk about them as beginnings and endings. Um, interstitial beginnings and endings that happen throughout a, throughout a piece of writing um, that are going to allow you to pull up that curve. There's still a, a bit of a dip. You know, you still don't have the punch that you have at the beginning or at the end, but those, those um, transitions that you're using throughout is going to be actually what you use to pull the reader back in again and again and again, and, ha and they'll, they'll ultimately have the, the sense that as they're reading, even if they're in the middle of your story, that they're, they're seeing beginnings and endings, right? They're, they're, they're feeling the hook of a beginning and sort of the expansiveness of an ending throughout your piece and working alongside your plot, which is creating your, you know, your short lines and long lines of tension, it's these transitions that are what, what's going to make your piece really beautiful and compelling to the, to the reader. Um, okay, so, so that is the audience memory curve. We're going to keep that in mind, and I'm going to just basically talk about, okay, how do you um, basically create this top line with transitions? Okay, so th the first thing we need to think about then, if we're going to create these transitions, is what is a beginning and then what is an ending? So the conventional wisdom that I, I hope is taught in writing workshops, although I'm not sure that it is, I don't think I learned it until I was actually on my own writing, but it, it's that beginnings, um, beginnings zoom in. It's very hard to wax poetic or philosophical in the beginning if you're an unknown writer. Like no one really cares what you have to say because they don't know your characters, they're not moved emotionally in any way. Um, so if you, if you start with like your narrator rambling 
philosophically, unless you're Stephen King or, some, or Joyce Carol Oates or someone famous, it's, it's a very quick way to lose a reader. They just don't care about the big picture stuff yet. What they care about tends to be very specific detail. Um, one of my favorite books is um, this book called Dare Me by Megan Abbott. She's sort of a thriller writer with good characters. And Dare Me is about cheerleaders. It's a murder thriller that involves cheerleaders. And the book opens with this cheerleader in the shower, and she's washing all the hairspray and glitter off of her body, and she's watching the glitter swirl down the drain. And it's very, this, this very specific, provocative imagery about glitter swirling down a drain. And then at the end of the passage, she says, you know, and, and once it all swirled away, there was nothing left. Like, I was nothing. Her words were better than that. But, but the idea of that specificity, right, the glitter swirling down the drain, and it was so, it was so deeply tied to who this cheerleader was, you know, how she thought of herself, that it was, it was a very effective opening to a novel. Um, in this particular presentation, I'm actually going to use my novel as, with some examples because uh, I want to point out to you what my editor illuminated for me in hopes that maybe that will reflect on, on your own work. And then I'm also going to use Claire Massoud. I don't know if many of you are familiar with Claire Massoud. Um, this novel is called The Woman Upstairs. And it's a brilliant novel. It, it, it does, she does great work with transitions, which is why I, I'm, I'm going to use her. She also does really good work with repetition, um, which we're going to talk about later in this talk. OK, so beginning zoom in. So I'm going to give you an example of this from my novel. So um, I had this, this, my novel is a, it's basically a, a story about these two main characters who have suffered a great loss. And they've sort of lost their love for each other. Um, and, and the house, um, the house they live in features very prominently in the novel. And so I had this passage in the novel that started, that started just with a description of the house. And it was, all the houses on our block were turn of the century, lovely houses in varying states of disrepair, peeling paint, wild ivy, broken fences. Ours was white with black shutters, which looked classic and stately at the same time. Lucas put in a red brick path with three steps leading to the front porch. The red brick was my suggestion. It goes on and, and, and describes this porch and this, this house that they live in, which is really the sort of heart of, of the, although the novel is set in a bar, this is sort of the heart of the, the past story between these two characters. Um, and so my editor read that, and she was like, that's a lovely description of the house. It goes on. Um, but it's not enough to pull the reader in at the beginning of a section. Um, it's sort of just a description of a house, which is good and fine. And writing has those kind of descriptions in it. But she wanted something very specific. Um, that, that was pertinent to the house, but also pertinent to the characters, right? And so that's what I mean by zoom in. It's, it's not only what is the most important thing from a descriptive standpoint, but what is the most important thing to the characters? And so what I ultimately ended up doing, she suggested that I add a scene that, that involved an object in the house between the two characters. So the new beginning of this section starts this way. A few weeks after I moved in, Lucas said, come with me to the hardware store. The small store was just five minute walk from the house. It's proximity, a pleasant legacy of the way people used to shop before they started driving to megastores in the suburbs. We paid a premium for all sorts of things there, tools, coffee filters, even kitchen equipment. We wanted the place to stay in business. Okay, I said, not bothering to ask what we needed. 
I grabbed Addie's leash. The hardware store is one of her favorite places. The cashier always gives her a treat. On our way out of the on our way out the door, Lucas pulled up a picture on his phone. I made something for you, he said. I want you to pick the stain. The picture was of a traditional porch swing propped on sawhorses in his dad's shop. I pinched out the screen to zoom in for a closer look, examining the grain of red cedar on evenly spaced slats. After we stain it, I'll drill holes in each side and add the chain to hang it, Lucas said. It's perfect, I said. And then, and then it goes on, and it's this little sweet scene between them, and they stain this porch swing. And the porch swing ends up featuring pr prominently in the book um, because she sits out there with her newborn baby, and um, it, it, it becomes like sort of a, a symbol of house and home and their love. Um, and I, and I, so, I, so this was the first um, insertion that my editor recommended. You know, just take that beginning, which was just a description of a house, and zoom in on the thing in the house that reveals character, reveals relationship, that is ultimately like really moving, I mean, hopefully moving to the reader. It becomes more moving, too, as the novel goes on. Um, so that's, that's an, uh, an, um, an example of a beginning. OK, now let's talk about endings. So if beginnings zoom in, then the corollary, of course, is that endings zoom out. So the idea with endings is this is your opportunity to be philosophical or poetic. Um, this is where the readers allow for that. And in fact, I think they want that from the writer. It's, the, it's, it's what, like when I read, I was just joking that when I read Claire Massou, I think about how much smarter she is than me um, because she's got like this hyper IQ. But, um, but you know, I think we look for that when we read something. We want to hear something that we don't already know or that is, is meaningful. We want, we want the writer to make some meaning for us. But that has to be earned. And it's not earned in the beginning. It's earned at, in an ending. Even a, an intermediate ending, that's a transition, but an ending nonetheless, like an ending between scenes or something. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you just one line my, my editor had me add. So I was talking about this character, this guy Cal, who he's a general contractor. He's one of the, the, the normal taste place in a bar, as I said, and, he, and he's in the bar a lot. Um, and it, he's talking about his business, his general contractor business that he acquired from someone else in the bar. Um, and so it, it sort of ended on this, just this dry note of, um, of this guy handing, handing the business over to Cal. Right? It, was very, it was very much a... Um, I mean, the character, it needed to be described for the character's sake, but there wasn't anything that zoomed out on it. So my editor said, I think you should add one more line here. So this was the line I added. Most people think of inheritance as money handed down, but not Cal. For him, inheritance is earned like everything else. Right? So it's just like a, an opportunity for the author to zoom out a bit, make a big picture point about inheritance in this case, or whatever, you know, whatever matters to the character, whatever matters thematically, um, that's a little bit more poetic than just talking about this business that had been handed over, right? So that's, that's a little more interesting. OK, so beginning zoom in, ending zoom out, right? With that in mind, let's talk about transitions. OK, so I, I put this car image up. I, I don't know. I like it. It's this idea. I don't know if any of you drive a manual. I think. A lot of the younger people drive automatics now, so I can't talk to my students about this. But, but when you drive a manual and you, and you shift, you actually feel the engine boost. Like it's a feeling you have in the car, right? And when you're reading a book with amazing transitions, and you're not, as a reader, of course, you're not thinking about transitions. 
but you want to feel that boot. You want to feel the, literally, you want to feel the writer shifting gears um, because that's what like propels you forward. It pulls you into that, that next scene or the next page, the next chapter. Um, so that's what I think a great transition feels like. Um, and it can be done very subtly. Like even, I'm going to give you one example from Claire Massou just because it's so minor. It's, you don't really even notice it. Um, there's, there's no white space break or anything. She's just moving from one paragraph to the next. So in one paragraph in this scene, she's with her dad in a museum. You know, kind of, the, the, her mother has died, so they're sort of dealing with that, and they're in, in the museum for that reason. Um, and she ends the scene like this, which is a zoom-out ending. She says, from my father then, I tried to take the wasp's advice to live as if, as if the fun house were real life, as if I enjoyed things I didn't enjoy, as if I were happy, and as if I hadn't been abandoned by the people I loved. Okay, so that's a zoom-out ending. This reference to the fun house we're going to talk about later because it's a, it's a, a repetition that she uses throughout the novel. Um, but uh, she's making this big picture point about living as if, right? Okay, and then no white space bake. The next paragraph is, Dee Dee wasn't buying it. Three days before Christmas, at the busiest time of year, she left the shop in the hands of Jamie, her employee, for two hours and took me to tramp through the snow around Jamaica Pond, smoking pot and sipping hot mulled wine from a thermos. I just think that's interesting because she went from this big zoom-out transition, right, or ending with the father, no white space break whatsoever, and the first sentence of the next paragraph is Dee Dee wasn't buying it, and we're immediately transported to an entirely different place with an entirely different person. Is this very fluid, like, I'm going to switch gears really subtly, and we're going to be in another scene. So transitions can be that, that simple, but still allow you to do those, those zoom out endings. Um, I'm going to give you another Claire Massoud example that's even, it's even a bigger transition because it's between chapters. Okay, so this, okay, so she's talking to her friend. You don't really need to know anything other than that. Um, she says, I've resolved to be more independent. You, but you're the most, in, you're the more, but you're more independent than anyone. More alone, maybe. And for some reason, I thought of my mother, each day more trapped, until she, would, she was buried in her aloneness. It's not the same thing, you know. So that's the ending of the chapter. And it's very beautiful. It's, it's this very philosophical idea about independence versus aloneness. It references her dead mother, right? So it, it's, it's bringing up character in a very interesting way. Um, but it, it absolutely zooms out because of that philosophical link between independence and aloneness. Okay, and, and then she starts the next chapter. Because I'd complained of my solitude, I worried that Sienna's invitation to dinner the following week was a pity call. Okay, so that, I mean, that's a beautiful transition, right? She's in this zoom out um, idea about independence and aloneness, and then you have this chapter break, and then she calls back to the previous chapter by talking about her solitude and being worried that this character is inviting her out of pity, right? So she's, she's making all these like really interesting thematic connections. Um, and, and what she's doing is pulling you straight into the next chapter. 
because you immediately want to like get into this idea of, of Siena and this dinner invitation and, and the pitying of, of this woman who is maybe independent or maybe lonely, you know, maybe a little bit of both. Um, so that's, a, that's sort of something to think about. Like once you've written, if you, let's say you're working on a novel, but this could even be a short story, um, and you've written these two chapters, think about how the ending of one chapter connects to the beginning of the next chapter. Sometimes you'll have a completely clean break. You know, maybe you'll have a different POV or a different time entirely in the next chapter. But that doesn't preclude you from um, including some sort of thematic transition um, that really will, will pull that reader through. It creates, if you think about that memory curve, you want to create that, you know, that upper, upper curve. Um, OK, I'm trying to be mindful of time because I'm going to leave 15 minutes for uh, questions. OK, uh, the next idea is this idea of, OK, when do I know that so, so I think in, at some point in revision, if you notice that your transitions aren't working, um, what you'll notice is, is this. Um, your progression will be something like this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Um, so like I, I have a friend who, she published her novel recently. She's a hilarious writer. Um, but, but she was giving a talk, and she was saying that at one point with a, a novel that she put in a drawer, didn't end up publishing, um, she noticed that it was just like the character was in seventh grade, and then the character was in eighth grade, and then the character was in ninth grade. And that was, that was like the progression of her, of her book. And she was like, that's, I mean, at one level that could work, I guess, but it's not interesting enough to sufficiently engage the reader unless you have good transitions. So I think that when you start to feel like, like it's kind of forced in that way, like this happened, and this happened, and this happened, um, you might want to think about moving scenes. Um, and even maybe moving around timelines a bit. Um, so basically, transitions can tip you off to the idea that your, your content, your writing, isn't optimally structured. There's something you can do to make it more compelling to the reader. Um, and fiction, I don't know how many of you write nonfiction versus fiction, but the nice thing about fiction is that you're making it up. So if you need to move a scene in time, you can do that, right? So I'm going to give you an example of um, a scene I had written. And it was this, there's a lot of, it's a, this novel takes place in a bar. So there's a lot of banter between characters. And they're, they're telling each other stories all the time. And there's kind of people hanging out. And at one point, they're bantering about um, death. Uh, one character says to the other, if you could know if you were going to die, um, would you want to know when you were going to die? And they have this sort of little, little piece of banter about that. And it's kind of one of those things that might come up at a bar, <laughs> I guess, um, after a few drinks. And, but it was also one of those things that I had just sort of, I mean, it was a nice conversation, but I had kind of just randomly placed it in my novel. You know, it was one of those scenes I just sat down and wrote, and then I wanted it in there because I liked it. But it wasn't really working with, with the transitions that were around it, and it didn't really do much for character or theme. Um, and, and so when my, uh, my editor read this scene, she said, well, can it be, can this conversation about death, can it be 
right after they've created a life. So it, also in the novel, the, the narrator gets pregnant. Um, and, and then right after she goes to the bar, she doesn't know she's pregnant yet. Um, but uh, so, so my narrator said, well, why can't it be this night? And so I moved the scene um, to here. And so I'll just read you the last line and then the first line. So before the white space break, she's at home with, with her husband, Lucas, and they're talking about whether or not to go to the bar. And then the, the last line of, of that is, if my math was right, this was the night Lionel was conceived. We made Lionel, and then we went to the bar where I drank my last whiskey before going cold turkey for nine months. And there's a white space break. And then it says, that night at the bar, we talked about death. Okay, and then we get this like fun banter conversation. But I, I really liked that because, you know, there was no reason that that, that, com that that piece of banter had to happen at any particular place in this novel. But once my editor said, put it there, then it was, it was doing so much more because it was playing on this idea of creating a life and talking about death, which to me was a lot more interesting than simply a bunch of people bantering about death without any other context. Um, it just creates this additional layer um, of meaning that, that in fiction you have the option to do because you can just move stuff around, right? The, you know, if, if something works, one of my professors at the writer's workshop always said that everything you write has to be working on two levels, at least. Sometimes it works on more levels. That's usually just luck. Um, but, you know, you can't just have people bantering for no reason. Like, there has to be some other level of, of interest or meaning um, for it to be sort of great writing. And, 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 that, and I think that's revealed by transitions. Because when your tr transitions are working, um, it, it should be a cue to you as a writer that, like, this is, this is where this scene is supposed to be placed. Okay. Um, so it's, it's greater than a simple progression of events. Okay, now I'm going to talk about, I'm going to go back to the Claire Massoud, and I'm going to talk about some sort of tricks. Like, if you're stuck um, with your transitions in some way, or not even stuck, but just things to think about. Um, one of them is the idea of repetition. Repetition is so effective in writing, in all kinds of writing. I teach this in my business communication class, and I think, but I think for creative writing, like when I see repetition in, in a novel, I mean, Claire Massoud uses it to such great effect. Um, it, it pulls me back in as a reader. It, it signifies like greater meaning because I've heard it before, and it's just satisfying. Like there's something as, as a reader when you recognize something you've heard before, um, that's deeply satisfying. Uh, the key, though, is that each time you use repetition, it has to be nuanced in some way. Otherwise, it's just redundant, right? So you can't just repeat some idea over and over again. It has to be within the context of the scene. And when it's in the context of the scene, then it is informed by the scene and, and made more interesting by the scene and, and really effective. So Claire Massoud does two main things with repetition in this book. Um, this one is the idea of the fun house. So the, the paragraph I read earlier in this talk referenced this idea of the fun house, right? That was further into the book. But she actually introduces the fun house on page four. 
So we get it right up front. I'm just going to read you her description of the, of the fun house. Um, let's see, where do I want to start? Okay. Okay. At the fair each summer when I was a kid, we visited the fun house with its creepy, grinning, plaster face two stories high. You walked in through its mouth, between its giant teeth, along its hot pink tongue. Just from that face, you should have known. It was supposed to be a lark, but it was terrifying. The floors buckled, or they lurched from side to side, and the walls were crooked, and the rooms were painted to confuse perspective. Lights flashed, horns blared in the narrow, vibrating hallways lined with fattening mirrors and elongating mirrors and inside-out, upside-down mirrors. Sometimes the ceiling fell or the floor rose or both happened at once and I thought I'd be squashed like a bug. The fun house was scarier by far than the haunted house, not least because I was supposed to enjoy it. I wanted to find the way out, but the doors marked exit led only to further crazy rooms, to endless moving corridors. There was one route through the fun house, relentless to the very end. I finally come to understand that life is the fun house. All you want is that door marked exit, the escape to a place where real life will be, and you can never find it. No, let me correct that. In recent years, there was a door. There were doors, and I took them, and I believed in them, and I believed for a stretch that I'd managed to get out into reality, and God, the bliss and terror of that, the, insanity, the intensity of that, it felt so different until suddenly I realized I'd been stuck in the fun house all along. I'd been tricked. The door marks exit hadn't been an exit at all. So this beautiful thing, this is obviously an ending to a section, right? We have the little symbol after it. Um, and, and again and again, it comes up in the book because her life is this fun house and it's this really interesting metaphor. Um, but she tees it up there and then that allows her to, throughout the course of the novel, use the fun house as a transitional idea, right? So she'll end a scene and she'll reference the fun house or she'll begin a scene I don't know if she ever begins a scene actually with Funhouse, but, but you get the point, right? So that, that was one example. The second example of repetition that really reels the audience in, and this relates to title, is this idea of the woman upstairs, um, which is the theme of the whole book. It's this angry woman um, who she calls the woman upstairs because the woman upstairs is ignored. Um, or, you know, the woman upstairs is the polite, quiet woman, right? Um, but it becomes a transition again and again. I'm just going to read you a couple of them. And the fact that it's in the title is also pretty nice. Um, so she's talking about this couple, the Shahids, which is the, the main, this is the main conflict in the book she has with this, this family. Before the Shahids, I thought I understood love and what it was and how, it, and how I felt about it, and they turned it all upside down. The very fact that I can tell you without blinking that I could kill them, that above all I could kill her, says all that needs to be said. Oh, don't worry, I won't, I'm harmless. We women upstairs are that too, but I could. Okay, so that's another ending for you, um, referencing obviously the title. She's already teed up the woman upstairs in the same way that she did the fun house. Um, but the way, that's the way she ends a chapter, right? She's talking about the Shahids, um, and that's so interesting to the reader. This, like, right now in the book, you're thinking, whoa, she could kill these people, and she's the woman upstairs, so she's not going to do that. Like, well, I know I'm not reading about a murder, but um, it's, it's really working to, to 
to basically spike that reader attention, right, that I talked about at the beginning. I'll just read you one more thing about the woman upstairs because she, it's, it's throughout the book. It's everywhere in this book, but you don't even feel annoyed by it because it's so good. The woman upstairs is like that. We keep it together. You don't make a mess, and you don't make mistakes, and you don't call people weeping at four in the morning. You don't reveal secrets it would be unseemly for you to have. You turn 40, and you laugh about it, and make jokes about needing martinis, and how 40 is the new 30, and you don't say aloud, and nobody else says aloud what all of you are thinking, which is, well, I guess she's never going to have kids now. And then, still less admissively, is this because she didn't think she wanted them or because she didn't get around to it? Silly fool, failure of time management. And, and she goes on and on and on. All these things the woman upstairs knows are being said, and she hates knowing and is infuriating to know, and she valiantly hides both her knowledge and her fury, and everyone remembers her 40th held in the bar of the Charles Hotel, no expense spared, as the best party they've been to in a long while, a party the way they used to be before spouses and children, and you've got to hand it to her. Um, all of this you know, and you bury deep like dead men, but they're there, the skeletons are there, and you're always with them. So anyway, um, that is, that's in the beginning, actually, of a, of a chapter, or sorry, of a section. It's, it's, it's sort of just, it's not even an ending. It's, it's, it's transitioning you through, um, you know, basically revealing character, right? And you get, these, you get these little details about her life, like she turned 40, um, but it's, it's, it's not in like a, a dry way. Like it's not in a paragraph about her just turning 40 and throwing a 40-year-old birthday party, um, which, you know, I think a, a, maybe a, another writer would have just done it that way, like put us in scene at her 40th birthday party. Um, but Masood does it just in, in the course of a transition, so we get all this information that she's turned 40 and that she's had this party and that she's hiding all these feelings that she has and everyone else in the room is hiding all these feelings that they have or these judgments or whatever. And it's done so swiftly because it's done just as a transition. Um, it's not a whole scene. Um, and, it, and it's, I think, effective in, in conveying what she needs to convey to the reader. Okay, and then the last sort of trick I have for you and then I'll, I'll break for questions, is this idea of going full circle. So um, this is another thing that's very, very satisfying to readers. So when you read something at the beginning of a novel and it comes back later, especially if it comes back at the end, there's something deeply satisfying about it. I don't, I'm not a psychologist, but it's something about our, uh, the way our minds work. We really want things to go full circle. Um, and, and that works in transitions, too. You can use transitions to go full circle. But, but really what it speaks to is this idea of beginnings and endings. And the more beginnings and endings you have in your novel, the more opportunities you have to go full circle, right? Because you can, you can start a chapter one way and end it by circling back to the way you started it. You can start the whole book one way and end it in the final scene by somehow circling back. Um, you can even do it within like shorter sections, between white space breaks. Um, or you can make references um, from earlier scenes to, to later scenes, right? So it's sort of this, this thing that's happening, not just what, like you don't just have one opportunity to go cir full circle. It's not just your beginning and your ending of the whole story. It's happening throughout the story, right? 
So I'm going to give you one last example from my book that my editor pointed out to me. Um, so I, th there's a c there, there are two scenes in the novel that take place at a Longhorn Steakhouse. Uh, they're, they're living in a small town, and there's a strip mall and a Longhorn. Um, and the first scene, she's just falling in love with her husband. Um, she's just met him, and, and they sort of go there on a lark. It's just the only place around when they're coming home. And they're having a drink. And, and it's so, um, so, it's so it's, the whole scene is sort of through rose-colored glasses, because she loves this man that she's with. And it doesn't matter that it's a Longhorn. It could be could be any place, right? But, but and she, they're bantering, and they're having all these jokes, and they're having a good time. And then the second time in the book that she's at the Longhorn Steakhouse, she has just left. I'm, I'm giving a lot away, but you should still, you should still buy my book. Um, <laughs> so the second time, she, uh, she has just left the office of her divorce attorney. And she's in such a dark place, and she's angry, and she's hurt, and um, she's criticizing everything. Like the, there's a Subaru in front of her with a 13.1 bumper sticker, and she's like, "That's only half of a marathon," you know. Um, and so she's just, she's just mad, right? Everything is just like critical. And she goes into the Longhorn, and she's just disgusted. But so her car breaks down. She has to pull over um, and wait for AAA. And she's like, she's making fun of all the sort of the people. Well, she's not really making fun of the people, but she's she's deeply critical of like the portion size. And the people in the room, and the the fake, every, all these like fake, you know, the, the soft music and the faux everything. Um, and and my editor read the scene, and she was like, I get why the character is in that place. Like she, a lot of bad stuff has happened to her, and she's just got, you know leaving her divorce attorney's office. But I still want there to be a moment of 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 her remembering what it was like to be in this Longhorn the first time when she was in love. Because it was just her spewing anger and negativity. And for a reader, there's something kind of ugly about that. Like you're feeling her pain with her, but you also kind of need a moment of, of I don't know, love too, just to balance it out or, or to make it the scene, I don't know, to make it better, really, to put it simply. Um, so I added this little thing, and it's sort of sentimental. Actually, I'm not a very sentimental writer, um, but you know, I really liked it. Um, she, she, so my editor said, "Why don't you add? Why don't you add a scene where she actually remembers the first time she was there?" Um, and so, so I added this uh, in anticipation of the tow truck driver's arrival, I mustered my sobriety and self-restraint and told the bartender, thank you, the drink was just fine, and then I'd take the check. But when the check finally came, I'd noticed he'd fucked it up, and it wasn't fucked in my favor, so I couldn't just tip him a little extra and be done with it. When he took back the bill, he laughed at his mistake. You didn't order the T-bone, now did you? I should have just paid for my neighbor's T-bone and been done with it, because the bartender took forever to bring me the correct bill, and in that time, I couldn't help but think about how much this place had changed since my last visit. Actually, the Longhorn was exactly the same. The patrons were probably new, but they were indistinguishable to me. Lucas was absent. That was the only difference. The first time I crossed the threshold of the Longhorn, so long ago now, Lucas called me out for being from Connecticut. I said, oh my god, I love you. It wasn't a serious I love you. It was one of those things you say when someone cracked you up. Maybe I should have said I love that because it was so early in our relationship. But in a subterranean, in a subterranean way, it was true. I loved him.
Um, and so anyway, it's just this moment between them. And it breaks up the spewing of negativity with a moment of, oh man, these, these two people were so in love in the same place. And, and to me, that's, that's what going full circle does. Like right then, the reader should be thinking, I've already been in this longhorn with this character. And then it, it evokes that previous scene where they were having all this light, fun banter and they were free and nothing bad had happened to them at that point. Um, and, and then it, it allows you to get this very sentimental moment of them saying, I love you for the first time. I think if I had put that, that little I love you thing in the initial scene early in the book, it would have been like cheesy rom-com, you know, because, uh, I don't know, characters saying I love you for the first time is a little bit rom-com-y, you know. But the fact that you're getting it the second time around when you're in a different scene at a different time after all this stuff has happened makes it more literary, I guess. Um, and I think that that's what my editor wanted. <laughs> I hope that's what she wanted. Actually, I... I I haven't gotten her comments yet on this draft. Um, but anyway, so, that, so that's, uh, that's a little bit of a departure from the idea of a transition. But it, it is just to say that you know, when you're thinking about your transitions, you can always think about what you had written in previous scenes. Because remember, you're doing all this work in a revision stage. So you've done all the hard work. Like all the hard work of creating characters and writing scenes and all that stuff, that's the hard, like revision is so fun because you just need someone to point out to you, like one of your fellow readers in your workshop, it doesn't have to be an editor, you know, it can just be like your best friend or something. Um, and you just need them to say like, this scene isn't doing enough, like it's just bitter and angry. And then once they say that, you can think about the last time they were in the Longhorn um, or whatever it is in your story, like whatever happened in a previous scene that you can call back, right? And then that can be your beginning or your ending. In this case, it sort of ends the scene on this note. Um, and then that can, again, propel the reader forward. And that's where we'll end it. Anna Bruno, what an excellent lecture. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. <laughs>